if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. And David, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Neil. Yourself? Can't complain at all. I've got my history hat on. I'm ready for a story from history. So, David, the way this works is I ask you the question in the title, and then you tell me when you are in history. So, David, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's probably around 1596, maybe 1597, somewhere in the Straits of Malacca, probably around Heru Bay in modern-day Sumatra. And there's an epic battle ongoing. The forces of the Portuguese Empire are clashing with the local Sultanate of Aceh. And amidst these powerful ships, the roar of cannon, the both sides boarding each other, the clash of steel on steel, some guy dies. We don't really know his name, but that's not necessarily what's important. The point is, he's dead now. Well... Definitely not a good day for some guy. So his name might not be important, David, but why is he important? He's known to history as Kumala Hayati's husband. So, in a sense, he's important because of his relations. The way in which his death would affect the world is through the people he knew and who loved him. So Kumala Hayati has lost her husband. Who is she, David? So Kumala Hayati is a woman of the royal family of the Sultanate of Aceh. She's not close to the line of succession particularly, but she's in the royal family, the highest noble ranks of the Sultanate. Her father was an admiral in the service of the Sultanate. Her grandfather was also an even more famous admiral in the service of the Sultanate. So her family has a strong naval tradition. And in an unusual move, her father insisted in this not at all gender equal society that she be allowed to study at the war college of the Sultanate of Aceh to study how to be a naval officer. And because of his importance and his connections to the royal family, he actually made that happen. But of course, once she graduated, even though she was considered competent compared to the rest of her classmates, no one was willing to let her actually serve in the Navy. And she ended up marrying one of her classmates from the Naval College and becoming, I suppose, a housewife, a noble, powerful, but ultimately a housewife for a few years, at least. But now, David, her husband has died fighting the Portuguese in this naval battle. Where does that leave Kumala? So Kumala Hayati is obviously traumatized. She's broken up. Her husband is dead. And she wants to see the war against the Portuguese continue. But 
the battle overall, even though arguably it wasn't an actual defeat for Aceh, it certainly wasn't a victory either. There were heavy casualties and many of the Sultan's closest advisors are recommending that the war be ended and the troops withdrawn. And Kumala Hayati, of course, is outraged. She insists that they can't abandon their dead. They can't end the war now. And she insists that she be placed in command of a fleet to continue the battle with the Portuguese. That is a very bold demand, David. Take us back to the Sultanate and to the Sultan himself. What was going on in Aceh around this time? So this is the tail end of the 1500s, and it's the beginning of the European age of imperialism in the Malacca Straits. The Straits of Malacca are even today one of the most critical sea routes in the world in terms of one of the busiest and most important merchant trading routes in the world. And in the 1500s, they were even more important than they are now because the islands around them, what we would now call Indonesia, are one of the most prolific sources of a wide variety of spices, from black pepper to cloves to nutmeg, all of which were essential for Europeans looking to extend and preserve their food supplies across the winter. So this is an important area to European would-be colonialists because of its economic importance. At the same time, it has a connection to the Islamic world because the Sultanate of Aceh in particular, which is the state we're discussing, was itself Islamic. And so they had a direct and important connection to the Ottoman Empire through mutual pilgrimages, especially to Mecca. So this is in many and possibly somewhat surprising ways to modern ears, a deeply globalized, connected portion of the world. But at the same time, the local sultanates are mostly small and not necessarily militarily strong. They're more economic powerhouses than warrior societies. And for the first time around the beginning of the 1500s, 1511 or so, you started to see direct voyages from Europe by the Portuguese and the Dutch. And as time has passed, the Portuguese have been expanding and seizing territory in the Malacca Straits, setting them on a collision course with Aceh. But at the same time, that's caused the Sultanate to consolidate, to gain power over noble houses that perhaps wouldn't have responded to the Sultan's demands before this time period, but now need the Sultan's protection from the European imperialist encroachments. And that in turn has created a toxic political atmosphere as these powerful nobles who view themselves as independent 
struggle to try and assert themselves as still being important against the sultan who is trying to centralize things in order to try and keep the state alive. Very complicated political picture, David. Globalization always makes things more complex. I think that's the case here, as well as the local politics with these powerful sultans and their smaller economic powerhouses that need to centralize to try and survive this European encroachment. So what options, David, does the sultan have here in 1596-97 as he's facing potentially a loss against Portugal? Well, the sultan wants to continue fighting because he knows that if he accepts a defeat, even if the Portuguese don't come this time, don't actually seize Banda Aceh, the capital city of the Sultanate, that his power against the nobles will be broken if they believe that any time they want to ignore his dictates, they can just go to the Portuguese who can beat him and get whatever they want. So he wants to continue fighting, but his nobles don't want to continue taking the casualties that continued confrontation with the Portuguese will create. So he needs a way maybe to shame them into joining the fight, but he also needs a very particular commander, one he can trust, because he knows that his most powerful nobles, the natural choice to put in charge, would be a terrible choice because several of them are secretly plotting and sometimes not so secretly plotting to take the throne themselves if they get the option. So giving them control of a powerful navy or army might be his own demise. So there is, David, this one royal who wants to continue the fight, Kumala Hayati, but it would indeed be a very strange choice to put her in charge of a navy, as you say, given the time and the place where this story is. Is the Sultan really going to take that bold move, David, and give a navy to this royal woman? He is. You have to remember, the one thing that he believes he can trust that she'll be unable to do is try and overthrow him, because who would accept a woman as Sultan? But the problem for Kamala Hayati is not about overthrowing him. She is, in point of fact, committed to the campaign against the Portuguese that he wants her to fight. The problem is, how does she get her own subordinates, the men who are the warriors who do not view themselves as, you know, the sort of people who would get ordered around by a woman, how does she get them to follow her orders and fight when she gives the word? Men are well known, much to their detriment, to not listening to smarter women, David. Can she get these sailors and soldiers on board to actually continue the fight with her against Portugal? So she has some real strengths in that regard. The first one is that she's royal. There are plenty of men of the time, especially the common sailors, the relatively low-ranking members of the fleet, who are ready to take orders because they're used to taking orders from royals and not necessarily making a distinction between royal men and royal women. And there are also the professional officers, trained by their Turkish allies, 
some of the best sailors that Ache has are professionals who are used to serving in a disciplined military where you don't get to pick who your leader is. And if the sultan appoints, you know, whoever, you just take orders. She sounds like she knows what she's doing. She's got actual training from the academy that they would have come from. So amongst that group, she has a certain respect that she can build on. But she's not popular with the middle group of traditional nobility who have been brought in into the Navy to bulk up the numbers beyond just what the professional force would allow for this war. But she has another bold move ready to go. After being appointed Laxamana, Admiral of the Ache Navy, she recruits what's called the Inong Bali, the widowed navy. According to mostly legend, unfortunately, the Dutch colonial period in Indonesia has destroyed many of the best records of the Sultanate of Aceh. It's over 1,000 women, all of them war widows from earlier wars with the Portuguese and the Dutch colonialists, who served as her bodyguard. Wow, David. So Kumala Hayati, herself a war widow, has recruited other war widows to serve as her personal army bodyguards. This is sounding like a pretty badass group of women that they've got together here, David. But there's a bigger issue at hand, which is the Portuguese. So the Portuguese are the problem, the obvious problem. And Kumala Hayati takes her navy out and faces the Portuguese for the first time with her as commander in battle. And she wins. It's a relatively small skirmish, a small Portuguese trading fleet, overwhelmed by Kumala Hayati concentrating superior force and then using her smaller, faster, more maneuverable ships with cannon that are lighter than European cannon, but some of which are breech loading and therefore can load faster to overwhelm the Portuguese, seize their vessels, and get a clear-cut victory, which helps her to develop the respect and the confidence of her force to continue this campaign. What a great start for Hayati here. She has her first victory well played, using her strengths to her best advantage to take out this small, admittedly small Portuguese fleet, but a great start here. David, were people starting to come around to this idea of a female admiral, or did she still have work to do? Well, very quickly, people did come around to this idea of a female admiral. By 1599, it's clear that she is in command of the Ache fleet, including the coastal fortifications, and that most of the people she is ordering around just accept it as normal now, even though it's only been one or two years. But something maybe a little bit more surprising starts to develop. You see, she's already gained a reputation in Portugal because they've heard the stories of the woman admiral fighting their fleets. Now she happens to encounter the Dutch 
for the first time. This was supposed to be a trading expedition, a Dutch trading expedition to Banda Aceh. It goes bad. The Dutch records are kind of unclear on why. And then it turns into a battle. One of the Dutch commanders, a man by the name of de Hootsman, is killed on the deck of his ship as it's overwhelmed by Aceh sailors. And the other Dutch admiral who's commanding the entire trading fleet pulls into Banda Aceh with no knowledge of what's been going on because this is all pre-radio. So he's been away at sea and does not know how badly his subordinates have screwed up. And he's immediately arrested. His name is Jacob Van Neck. And Kumala Hayati immediately arrests him when he lands and his landing party and sends his ship back to Holland with a personal message to the Dutch Prince Maurice of Orange, one of the most famous men in Europe for his own military advances, demanding that he send a ransom for the men who have been arrested, the Dutch Dutchmen who have been arrested, and a ambassador to negotiate peace, including paying reparations for the wrong that the Ache consider to have been done to them. Wow, David, she's not just beating the Portuguese. Now she's beating the Dutch as well. A strong list of commands back to the Netherlands to order them to make peace as well. David, Kumala Hayati isn't wasting any time in making her presence felt at the head of the Ache Navy. She is not. And at this point, her legend basically starts to spread throughout Europe. More and more people start to hear about Kumala Hayati, the woman who is holding back the Dutch and the Portuguese. One of those people who hears this story is Queen Elizabeth I of England. And apparently, she's deeply impressed because she orders James Lancaster, who's one of the two men who at this time is founding the East India Company, which will become famous later, but at this point is mostly just two guys in a dream. And she orders him as one of his first trading expeditions into the East Indies to also send a message from Queen Elizabeth to Kumala Hayati in person, expressing her respect and asking, not demanding, asking for permission to open trading uh, relationships with Aceh. So David, this could start to have implications for the power balance in Europe as Portugal and the Dutch are defeated, as the English now are asking for trading relations. What's the end game here, David, in terms of how these various conflicts are going to start to play out now. Well, unfortunately, despite a early strong start, Kumala Hayati is about to enter some mid-game setbacks. The Portuguese have lost some small trading fleets and have been driven back from Aceh territory, but they still hold Malacca, another city nearby that used to be an independent sultanate a few decades before this story kicked off. So they're still trading into what would be modern day Indonesia. And in spite of some setbacks, they're certainly not totally defeated. 
The same can be said for the Dutch. They've been beaten up and beaten around, but they've secured a treaty and trade negotiations with Aceh, even if it took one of their admirals being ransomed to do it. So both of those European powers are still in the game. And this is when things start to fall apart in the Sultanate of Aceh, because the old Sultan dies. And the wars that he was worried about, the noble factions that he was afraid would try to seize his throne while he was still alive, now try and seize his throne the moment that he's dead. I was just going to ask how this had all played out for the Sultan, David. His bold move to put a woman in charge of the navy seemingly had paid off, and yet death comes for everyone. So while it may have kept his throne during his lifetime, now the throne is up for grabs as he is dead. Indeed, and I should mention here, it's unclear. Some stories claim that he was poisoned by one faction or another. Other stories that he died of natural causes. Either way, doesn't make much difference for him, I suppose. On this podcast, it does seem like a lot of people are murdered or otherwise disposed of, so you never know. You never know. Now, Kamala Hayati, in the immediate aftermath of his death, picks one of her cousins, because she was of the royal family too, as the best man to succeed to the throne and backs him. And initially, it looks like they're going to lose the factional struggle to secure the throne. It looks like one of the more traditionalist members of the royal family who has made appeals to the traditionalist nobles is going to seize the throne and possibly even have both of them executed. But then the Portuguese show up. They've heard that Kumala Hayati is out of favor at court. They viewed her as the strength of Aceh, the real threat to Portuguese control in the region. And they're planning a quick invasion to take advantage of Aceh in what they view as a state of weakness. Ah, the Portuguese are back. Kumala Hayati's sworn enemies, they killed her husband. And now with Aceh in a bit of a power struggle, in a bit of trouble here, the Portuguese have arrived. Can Kumala find enough forces, David, to fight off this Portuguese attempt? Well, this is the dramatic moment. She's avoided being arrested thus far, although the cousin that she was backing for the throne a man by the name of Dharma Wangsa, has been. But she's out of favor, out of power. The Portuguese are encroaching. And suddenly, the nobility, the current sultan, quote-unquote sultan, the candidate she'd been backing, pretty much the entire country of Aceh, turn around, reappoint her to be admiral once again, and rally around, they've seen what happened to Malacca when the Portuguese came in during a similar succession crisis and took seized control of the entire country. No one wants to see that happen, and everyone knows that the best person to command the Aceh fleet in this defense of their homeland is the only person who's won actual victories against them regularly, and... That's Kumala Hayati. Nothing like a foreign threat, David, to get everyone to rally around the flag. And 
how far we've come from 1597 when it was a bold and potentially crazy move to put a woman in charge of the Navy. Now everyone, everyone recognizes that she is the best person for the job, man or woman. So David, she's back in charge of the Navy. And once again, she's going to war with the nation that killed her husband. Take us to the seas with Kumala Hayati. So the fundamental basics of naval warfare in Indonesia aren't going to change across her lifetime. The Indonesian tradition of metalworking and cannon building imported from the Chinese has focused on relatively lighter cannon that are quicker to load than their European counterparts. And the ships, especially the Aceh ships, although they're inspired in some ways by European galleys, are much lighter than the European ships that they're fighting, simply because they don't have to be built for a voyage across the Pacific Ocean. So the Indonesian tactics are all about, the Aceh tactics, I should say, are all about speed and maneuverability. They always want to swarm a Portuguese ship and get their own warriors on board, where once they've boarded the ship, they can seize it. But another tactic that at this point Kumala Hayati starts to deploy with some regularity revolves around her control of the coastal forts, which the Aceh consider part of the navy. She can use larger cannons on forts than on ships. So what she'll do is pretend weakness, send out a single ship that the Portuguese will think that they can trap, hunt down, and then it'll flee just fast enough that the Portuguese always think they can catch it until it lures them close to a coastal fort they don't know about that can then sink their ships. So this campaign quickly becomes very costly for the Portuguese, and very quickly they're forced to withdraw their invasion of Aceh a failure. She has done it, David. The woman in charge of the navy has defeated the Portuguese once again, fighting for her dead husband. What a huge success for Aceh. It's dramatic. And in point of fact, for the Sultanate of Aceh in particular, Kumala Hayati returns home to great acclaim, of course. She's famous. She's a hero. She places her preferred candidate on the throne, essentially against no opposition. Everyone knows she has the army behind her, so there's no real point trying to fight it. The brief interim sultan slips away and escapes to exile, and it becomes for Aceh something of a golden age. They begin extending their influence beyond their own small part of the island of Sumatra over a much wider area than they ever have before. It's really remembered in the state of Aceh even today, now that they're a portion of the Republic of Indonesia, as a cultural flowering for the state. Kamala Hayati herself tragically will die in battle against the Portuguese trying to reconquer Malacca. It's a naval battle at Kurungrea Bay where she is cut down and the Portuguese ultimately hold on to their base in Malacca for a few more decades 
but end up in conflict against the Dutch. And Ache itself, although it never regains the height of its power that it reached when Kumala Hayati was so famous that ambassadors were being sent from England just to congratulate her on her victories. Even though Ache will never reach its heights of power again, it will be centuries before it ceases to exist, as all states do with time. David, quite the string of victories for this brave woman who took over a navy, defeated the Europeans, and really turned around the fortunes of the Sultanate. And to think that she might never have even become an admiral because of her gender, if not for a wild turn of events, but really she became one of the best. When you think about all the unlikely events that had to occur just for her to become trained in the skills of sailing and of naval command, and then the much more unlikely string of events that had to occur to let her have the opportunity to actually use those skills she'd been trained in, and then the results that flowed from that, you know, in spite of how unlikely it all was, you can't believe that it happened, but it did, because history, wild, it's wild, man. History, it's wild, man. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you like this story, I think you might enjoy episode 34, The Admiral and the Ambush, so you can go back and listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure while you do, you subscribe and give us a review. It helps others to find us. We really appreciate it. And if you want to get in touch with us, at When Art Thou on all your favorite social media platforms. David, we'd like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for a quiz today? I could do a quiz, Neil. All right, David, we did this one a few episodes ago in The Caliphate and the African. If you want to go back and listen to that episode, we played the quiz of song lyrics about history. You have to fill in the blanks in some songs that are about history, David. Are you ready to play? Spin them up. This song is popular on TikTok right now, David. The disco song Rasputin by Bonnie M. They sing about the Russian political advisor Ra Ra Rasputin, Russia's greatest blank. I believe he was Russia's greatest love machine, Neil. You've got it, David. You got it, David. And you went five for five last time we played this quiz. So uh, no pressure here, but uh, we'll see if you can match that total. In Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, they sing about the Kent State shootings. Quote, tin soldiers and Nixon coming. We're finally on our own. This summer, I hear the drumming. How many dead in Ohio? The tragic Kent State shootings if I recall correctly, killed four. You're correct, David. Four people died and nine were injured when the National Guard opened fire on protesters at Kent State. Two for two, doing well. This one's a bit tougher, I think. It's one of the best alternative rock songs of all time, Zombie by the Cranberries. They sing about the troubles in Northern Ireland, saying, It's the same old theme since 1916. In your head, in your head, there, what? Huh, I'm afraid... Alternative rock is not my genre. It's a reference to, well, 1916 would be a reference to the Easter Rising, most likely. So what are they doing in your head? Ah, dying? I do not know. 
Good guess, David. In your head, in your head, they're still fighting in Zombie by the Cranberries. Johnny Horton's The Battle of New Orleans was the number one song in 1959, David, 145 years after the battle. In it, he sings, Who said we could take them by surprise if we didn't fire our muskets till we looked them in the eyes? Well, it would have to be the American commander at the battle, Andrew Jackson, I would imagine. You're close, David. The lyric is Old Hickory said we could take him by surprise. And you're right, Old Hickory is future President Andrew Jackson, who earned the nickname because he was as unbending as a tree and as tough as wood. And there was an Iron Maiden song in our last quiz, so we'll do one more Iron Maiden song, David. This one is The Trooper, about the doomed charge of the Light Brigade. It goes, You'll take my life, but I'll take yours too. You'll fire your blank, but I'll run you through. Well, this is the Crimean War, one of the last wars where rifled muskets, not really rifles, but only arguably still muskets, were the technology of the day. I believe that Iron Maiden went with musket as their descriptor for the weapon. You've got it, David. And if you want to learn more about the Charge of the Light Brigade and the other great piece of poetry it inspired, not the Iron Maiden song, but the the other one, you can listen to our episode, The Battle and the Poem. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 